Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us online uh, this weekend here at Grace Medina East Campus. And I know that uh, for some of you, maybe you're watching this by yourself uh, at your home or maybe you're watching this with your family. And maybe for you throughout this whole COVID season, uh, you have been just staying connected online as much as possible. As so I just want to say, uh, as we start off, thanks so much for doing that. And I know that the online fatigue thing is real. And so thanks for uh, just kind of persevering through the season and staying connected. If you're newer to Grace, uh, maybe your first kind of connection to the Medina East Campus, just want to extend a real special welcome to you. Glad you're able to stay connected and, and be connected with us here too. And uh, I also understand that uh, some of you might be joining us today via a watch party. So I've heard that there's been some of that going on with people in our church. And so if that's you, uh, party on Wayne or whatever. So I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how much of a party your watch party is, but I'm really glad that you're tuning in. So, so thanks for being with us as we're actually continuing together in the series that we have been calling Review. And if you're just uh, joining in, what we've been saying is that, man, without a doubt, right, we live in a world today that is a uh, review world, right? We review everything. We review products, we review music and movies and restaurants and clothing and all kinds of things. And what we've been saying is we've been saying, you know, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good to that. There's a plus side uh, to, to what we've seen as it relates to being in a review culture. Uh, but what we've said is this, is we said, you know, sometimes we take that review mentality with us and we can actually import that sometimes into our interaction with, with the church. And so we can take with us, you know, certain preferences and opinions and expectations of what we think the church should or should not be. And we can kind of bring those with us into our experiences uh, kind of at church. And so in this series, what we're doing is we're actually looking at the one place in the entire Bible where we see Jesus Christ himself giving his review, right? Kind of giving his opinion, his preferences, his expectations of what he wants his church to look like. And so we've been saying that kind of in a nutshell, that's what this whole series is about, right? What we're after is we're after what is uh, Jesus's vision for his church. And then what we're asking is for those of us who follow Jesus, which by the way, I know that not everyone who's maybe connected right now is a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're kind of investigating Christianity. If that's you, by the way, so glad you're able to, to kind of tune in. What we've been saying is what is Jesus's vision for the church? And for those of us who follow Christ, how do we pursue that vision um, kind of together. So the place that we've been looking in the Bible is actually in Revelation chapter two. And so I want to encourage you, if you could get your Bible out or open up your Bible app. And if you would join me here in Revelation chapter two, that's actually where we're going to be going uh, here together. So I think it'd be really cool if you actually had a Bible in front of you. So, so please take a moment and do that. And uh, what we've been saying is what we see in this passage that we've been looking at over the past weeks is we see Jesus giving his review of these seven churches. And uh, these were seven churches in the ancient world. And this portion of scripture is sometimes referred to as the seven letters to the seven uh, churches. And so, so far we've actually looked at three of these, uh, these seven letters to three of these churches. Today, we're going to look at the fourth. And so why don't we go ahead and let's just jump in. I'm actually gonna start by reading the whole letter to this church. And then afterwards, we'll go back and we'll kind of make some observations and talk it through. All right, so let's start off. We're going to start off Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Here's what it says. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds. I know your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. 
and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to the eating, uh, the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so that is our passage for today. So let me say that if you are new to church or kind of new to grace, welcome. And apparently you came on a great weekend uh, with a great, great passage that we're looking at. And man, I'm just saying, if you were paying attention to that when we were reading that at all, it's probably pretty clear uh, that this is a challenging letter. Uh, by far, of the seven letters to the seven churches, this is the most difficult. Uh, this is the probably the harshest of the church reviews that comes from Jesus, and uh, and I think it's it's there's a lot of challenging things that we see in here. Now, before we jump in and start to to make sense of what Jesus says here, let me just give a little bit of clarity to to kind of help us as we jump in. So first off, let me say if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian. I just want to let you know, this passage is actually not primarily addressed to you, all right? You, you would notice if you looked uh, at that passage, it's actually written to the church. And of course, the church is just referring to those who follow Jesus. So I want you to know that. Secondly, let me say this, that if you're a person who follows Jesus and you are genuinely, authentically struggling and wrestling to overcome sin in your life, that you are fighting with all your might against it, not perfectly, but increasingly, I want you to know this passage is also not for you, okay? Now, if you're a person who follows Jesus, claims to follow Jesus, and you have hidden secret sin, unrepentant, resistant, I'm not willing to change kind of thing in your life, I want to tell you this passage actually speaks mainly to you. It speaks to this. And so as we jump into this challenging passage, I think it actually would only be fitting that maybe we just start with a word of prayer together. And, uh, and so as we try to make sense of this, I want to encourage you, maybe pray with me that as we look at these words, that God would open our hearts. And I would actually ask you too, that maybe in the next moments, would you pray for me too, as I'm uh, trying to make sense and teach this passage to us as well. So why don't we pray together and, uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of take it verse by verse. So let's do that. Well, Jesus, we just want to come before you. And uh, first and foremost, we just, I just want to say uh, that I'm thankful, thankful that you have uh, allowed us to know what you think, allowed us to know your heart. So I pray in these next moments that you would teach us, God, uh, what you think, help us care about the things you care about, love the things that you love. And, uh, and Lord, I even pray that in the next moments that as I uh, go through this passage, that if, if, uh, if what I have to say is from you is an accurate representation of what you say, 
Lord, then I pray uh, that those words would be heard and that they would transform us. And if not, God, if there's, if there's anything that I'm going to say that's not, then I pray that it would be forgotten. And so we just want to lift this up to you, and we want to ask that you be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, thanks uh, for that. And so, so, uh, so let's dig into this passage together. We'll start at the very beginning. So he begins, he says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Okay, so this church uh, was written, uh, this letter was written to a church in a region of the world that was called Thyatira. Now, there's some people pronounce it differently, Thyatira, Thyatira, Thyatira. I don't know how to pronounce it. No one really knows. Let's just go with Thyatira. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this place. What do we know about this city, Thyatira? Well, the truth is, we actually don't know a ton about this place. Uh, The ancient city of Thyatira, currently today, there is a city that has been built over top of that city. And so we're actually pretty limited archaeologically to what we can excavate there. Um, But there are, I'll just say, there's a couple things that we do know about Thyatira that I think are going to be really really, really helpful to make sense of this passage. And so without getting too deep into the weeds, let me just tell you about two things that you need to know about this city, okay, that's going to help us make sense of what Jesus says. So here's the first thing we know about Thyatira. Thyatira was the center place of the worship of the god Apollo, okay? So this would be kind of his emblem. Apollo, uh, or also called Helios, is uh, the sun god, right? was the sun god. And so this would have been the, the center place of the worship of Apollo. Now, secondly, here's the other thing we know about Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira was the manufacturing and marketing hub of the Roman province of Asia. And so this was the place where most of the goods that would have been distributed around the ancient world would have been manufactured and marketed. So one thing we actually know about Thyatira is that it was famously known for its many trade guilds. And so there was all these different trades and all these different guilds. And so, for example, commentators point out there would have been leather guilds, there would have been linen guilds, people who made different kinds of clothing. There would have been dyers guilds, those who dyed cloth. And so we actually know, for example, in the book of Acts, the Bible tells us about this woman named Lydia, who was from Thyatira, and she actually dealt with the color purple, which basically meant she was a dyer and would dye clothes purple. Uh, wool, tanners, weapons, bakers, on and on. There's all of these different guilds that would have come together uh, to produce different different goods. Now, let me tell you that today in our culture, there really is no equivalent to these guilds. But maybe the best way to think about it is like this. These guilds were something like a union. So if you think of like a modern day, like a bricklayer's union or electrician's union, it was like a union meets a fraternity. That's kind of what it was like. And so uh, this would be the place where economically, professionally, and socially, you would find community and you would find security. And so in this city, to not join a trade guild meant that you basically wouldn't be able to make it financially or socially or professionally in those ways. So think about this for a minute. Back in this time, there was no social security. Uh, There was no, you know, the government didn't provide food stamps. There was no disability, no unemployment, no retirement. And so the way that you found those, those things was through these guilds. They would provide that for you. And so here, if you can kind of get your head around that, here is where one of the main problems arose for those who followed Jesus. And that was this, that these guilds, that they would regularly get together and they would have events and they would have functions and they would do those kind of things. And in those events and functions, they would honor and they would worship the god Apollo. It actually was a a big part of what they would do. And so in their functions, they would come together, they would 
begin their function by making a sacrifice to Apollo, and then they would eat the food that was sacrificed to him. In addition to that, uh, these events and these, function, these functions would oftentimes involve worship practices that would sometimes devolve into some pretty wild things. And so there'd be these wild parties, there'd be a lot of drinking involved. They oftentimes would engage in some pretty crazy and wild sexual practices. They would swap wives. It was crazy. So it would, it would, be, um, it would be like a crazy business Christmas party gone wild. It was kind of like that. It was just nuts in Thyatira. So as you can imagine, for the Christians, for the people who started to follow Jesus, this actually became a major point of friction, right? Because as followers of Jesus, one of the things that we're called to is we're called to worship only God alone, right? Not to worship false gods. This created a problem for followers of Jesus. In addition to that, Christians are called not to practice some of uh, these, these things like sexual immorality and the, and the meat sacrifice to idols. So this created a rub for a lot of Christians. And, and so because of that, many Christians were starting to say, man, if we follow Jesus, that means that we can't participate in some of this stuff anymore. That had social implications and business implications and so on and so forth. So, so I want you to understand that that's some important background that's going to give insight to what Jesus says. So Jesus is talking to this church, and here's what he says to the church in Thyatira. He says in his review, I know your deeds, in verse 19, I know your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So I want you to notice as we read Jesus's review here, it actually starts off pretty strong, right? Jesus commends this church on some really, really great characteristics. So he says, hey, I know your love and your faith, right? You guys, in other words, you guys really love people, you're really good at loving people. You have incredible faith, right? You believe, you believe me and you believe uh, the things that I say. He says, I, I love your, I see your service. You guys are awesome at serving each other and serving the community. Uh, I see your perseverance that you, that you don't quit easily, that you, you stick with it. And I want you to notice what else he says. These are strong commendations. But then he also says, he says, I know that now you are doing more now than you did at first. Now, this is, this is a, a pretty awesome thing Jesus says about this church. Unlike the church in Ephesus who had abandoned their first love, he says, you're doing more now than you've ever done before. In other words, this church wasn't coasting. This church wasn't stagnant. It's probably a growing church. They actually were probably taking a lot of ground in their community. And so Jesus starts off, he's got some really glowing things to say about this church. But, you know, it's not very long before you see that he actually has one very, very strong rebuke. And here's what he says in his criticism against this church. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, which of course, whenever Jesus says he has something against his church, I want to listen to that. And here's what Jesus says. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I think um, when you start to dig into this passage and you look at it, what you see is uh, that in Jesus' address to the church in Thyatira, that his big problem, the main problem he has with this church, is actually found right here. It is that they tolerate. This actually, I believe, is the crux of the matter in Thyatira. Jesus looks at this church and he says, here's the issue. You tolerate too much. You are too tolerant. Now, I think, I think this actually raises a really important issue for us today, I actually think is really worth spending some time talking about and thinking through together. You know, I think, um, as all of us know, the word tolerate is a huge buzzword in our culture, and it has been for the past several decades, right? And in many ways, t 
tolerance is considered the highest virtue in our culture, right? The word tolerate, there's nothing greater that you could do than tolerate. And we hear that in a lot of different ways. And here, here's the question that I think that this passage brings to surface that quite honestly may be a point of confusion for many of us. And, and here's the question. Maybe I'll pose it to you this way. Uh, here's the question I think this forces us to ask. Does Jesus, does Jesus Christ promote or does he prevent tolerance within a society? Okay, I think that's the question. Or let me put it another way to you. Here's another way to think about it. Are Christians, those of us who follow Jesus, supposed to be tolerant people? All right, and then I'll say another way, one other way, just for clarity. Is Jesus's church, right, is our church, which is Jesus's church, supposed to be a tolerant church? And if so, like how, what is that supposed to look like? Now, here's the thing. I think maybe at face value, um, it may seem like a simple question or a simple group of questions, but I think if you start to look at the Bible and you look at this biblically, it can actually get a little fuzzy. So, uh, for example, let me see if I can tease it out for you this way a little bit. All right, so think about this. Back in this passage, here we see Jesus Christ speaking. Okay, this is, by the way, this is the same Jesus who was regularly criticized throughout the Gospels for being someone who would eat and hang out with tax collectors and sinners, right? This is, this is the Jesus who would often associate with people who were like, you know, kind of social outcasts and those who had shady characters. This is the words from the same Jesus, the same Jesus who famously said in Matthew chapter 7, do not judge or you too will be Judge is probably the most famous passage quoted by Jesus in our culture today. This is the same Jesus who said we should love our enemies and we should serve those who hate us and we should uh, go the extra mile with those who persecute us and who disagree with us. Same Jesus. And what I want you to see is here in Revelation 2, that same Jesus says, I have this against my church. You guys are too tolerant. You're too tolerant. So that creates a problem. I mean, a little bit, doesn't it? Like, which is it? So let, let me see if I can maybe help clear this up a little bit for us, okay? Um, I would say in one sense, in one sense biblically, when you look at, at Scripture, there is a, uh, for lack of a better term, there's a good kind of tolerance. So, uh, so for example, um, what about like legal tolerance? Okay, you think about legal tolerance. Is it a good thing for others to be allowed to believe what they want to believe and have the freedom to worship in the ways that they, they choose to worship. Is that a good thing? And I would just say, biblically, I would say, yes, absolutely. I think that's a, is a very good thing. L listen to me. Christianity is never and was never something that was intended to be imposed, right? You can't force a belief system. It, it, it's always been Christianity is to be proposed, but never to be imposed on anyone. All right, so legal tolerance. I, I think that's a good kind of tolerance. Uh, what about social tolerance? Okay, that is people who are socially different in a lot of different ways. Biblically, I would say, yes, that is a good kind of tolerance, right? I hope that all who are following Jesus that are Christians would agree that we do not emphatically do not want people who disagree with us to be discriminated against or to be made social outcasts or to be dehumanized in any way. Absolutely not, that's for sure. In fact, let me, just, let me just say for a minute, I actually believe very strongly in a free society. I do. And I actually don't believe that primarily because I'm an American. I actually believe that because first and foremost, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I think we see some of this in scripture. In fact, if I could even take it a step further, I would say this. 
in, in some ways, Christians are actually called to be more tolerant than others in society. In fact, I might even go a step further. I might even say this. Christians are actually called to be more than tolerant. I think tolerance in a lot of ways actually sets the bar too low. It doesn't go far enough. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about it. What did Jesus say? Jesus didn't say, tolerate your enemies. That's not what he said. Jesus didn't say, tolerate those that are different than you. What did he say? He said, love your enemies. He said, serve those that are different than you. Practice hospitality. Welcome in those who are not like you. Serve them. Pray for them. Those who persecute you, seek their good and pray for them. Those are the things that Jesus said. And so in some ways, tolerance doesn't go far enough, right? And why is that? Because, think about this, Jesus Christ himself did so much more than tolerate his enemies, right? What did Jesus do to those who were beating him and speeding on him and crucifying him? He didn't tolerate them. He prayed for them. He served them. He sacrificed for them. Jesus died for his enemies, and the Bible tells us that we at one time were enemies of God. And what did he do? Did he tolerate us? No, he saved us. He saved us. And so again, I think in some ways, tolerance doesn't go far enough. It sets the bar too low. So I think you can see um, that there is, there's a good kind of tolerance. However, I think that there is another kind of tolerance. And this is the kind of tolerance I think that Jesus is critiquing here in Thyatira. So what is that? Well, let's take a look at what he says. Look what he says. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jezebel. All right. So we got to talk about Jezebel here for a little bit. This might be kind of fun. All right. So what is that talking about? Okay. Well, let me just say this, that it seems, given the context, that Jesus is most likely actually referring to a real person here who was maybe a gifted teacher who said that they were from God, but they were misleading God's people and, uh, and leading them into things that Jesus didn't want uh, for them. Now, uh, just to be clear, commentators 100% agree on this, that whoever this teacher was, that her name or whoever it was, their name was actually not Jezebel, right? Jezebel is actually a name that comes from the Old Testament. There's an Old Testament queen, and the name Jezebel biblically represents a certain label. So, uh, for example, to call someone Jezebel uh, in the Bible would be like calling someone a Benedict Arnold in our culture or calling someone a Judas or maybe a more recent uh, kind of example would be like calling someone a Karen, right? So to call someone by these names is essentially to put a label on them. That's what you're doing. And so here uh, it says that this is a Jezebel. Now, what does that mean? All right, well, let's talk about her for a minute. It's actually referring to a, an Old Testament person and Jezebel was uh, by far Israel's most wicked queen. Uh, her story, if you wanna read about it, was actually found in 1 Kings 16, all the way through 2 Kings chapter nine, it's kind of intermixed in there. And basically who she was is she uh, was a woman who married a guy by the name of Ahab. So Ahab was the king of Israel. And quite honestly, Ahab was a big wimp. And so when, uh, when Jezebel comes into the scene, she becomes queen, and very quickly, she is the power behind the throne. She steers the throne. And essentially, her big deal was this. She basically led Ahab and all of Israel along with them into worshiping pagan gods. And so under her influence, Ahab built temples and monuments to pagan gods, um, and so because of this, she led all of Israel astray. In fact, I want to show you something real quick, what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16 about Ahab and Jezebel. Here's what it says. It says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. All right, just 
bad dude. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, there she is, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and she began to serve, and they began to serve Baal and worship him as a false god. It says Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal in, in, that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So I want you to understand Ahab was considered biblically the most wicked king of them all. And a huge part of that was because of his wife, Jezebel. Because of her influence, she led Ahab and she led all of God's people into something that's called syncretism. All right, now that might be a new word to you. So let me define that real quick. Here's what syncretism is. It is a blending of differing and oftentimes opposing religions, beliefs and world systems and ideologies and kind of blending those things together. And so basically Jezebel's teaching was that a person could worship Baal could worship Asherah, could worship Aphrodite and all these other gods, and worship God, worship the, the one true God, Yahweh. And here's the thing about Jezebel. She had anyone who dared speak against her killed. And so anyone who disagreed with her, she would hunt them down and she would kill them. She was notorious for hunting down God's prophets. In other words, in the Bible, let's get this, Jezebel was evil personified. That's what she was. That's why to this day, You've probably never met anyone named Jezebel. We just don't do that. Because why? Because that name is symbolic of so many terrible things. Let me just tell you, as a pastor, I have done a lot of baby dedications in my life. I have never held a little, a little Jezebel. Never did it before. And uh, the reason is because naming your child Jezebel is like naming them pure evil. And so that's, that's what we wouldn't do. And so that's a little bit about who she was. And here's what I want you to notice is that here in Thyatira, this passage that we're looking at, Jesus says the problem that he has with this church is that they tolerate Jezebel. Now, uh, what was it about her that they should not have tolerated? Well, I want you to notice here, he's going to go on to say that it actually is her teaching. It's her teaching. So look what he says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Now, a prophet, by the way, is a person who speaks on behalf of God. And so apparently she was a self-proclaimed prophet. She, uh, she claimed to be a Christian a Christian teacher, but apparently spoke things that were very, very opposite and contradictory to what Jesus said. And so notice what it says. She calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching, she misleads. And so again, uh, she claimed to be a Christian teacher, but she taught things that were contrary to what Jesus said. In fact, if you have your Bible in front of you, you might notice down in verse 24, Jesus actually calls her teaching Satan's so-called deep secrets. That's really crazy. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Well, I don't really know, but apparently what she was doing, this teacher, was she was saying something to the effect of this. She was basically telling God's people, listen, you don't need to listen to these other teachers. You don't need to listen to just the Bible. There's deeper things. There's new insights. There's more progressive ways of living and thinking. And the teaching of the Bible alone is limiting and it's restricting and it's unsophisticated and it's antiquated. And so through this teaching, apparently, look what the Bible says, she misleads or misled, which the word there literally means seduced. She, she seduced God's people to what? Into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So what's that talking about? Remember, like just a few minutes ago, I talked about those trade guilds 
I talked about those functions and events they had where they would come together, they would sacrifice uh, to Apollos, and then they would eat food sacrificed to him. Remember the wild parties and the, the, the crazy sexual practices that took place? So that's what he's talking about here. Apparently, whatever this teacher, this Jezebel was teaching, she was basically saying to God's people, look, it's no problem. You can follow Jesus and you can do all that other stuff too. You can do both of them, right? You can participate in those things without any consequence. Jesus is fine with it. You can go, in other words, if you could modernize it, you can go to church on Sunday and then you can get high on Monday. And Jesus is totally fine with that. You can, you can go to life group and study the Bible one night, and then the next night you can indulge in porn, you can engage in whatever sexual practice you want to, and Jesus is totally fine with that. You can pray with God's people in one meeting, and then you can the next day go to work and you can cut corners and you can practice unethical business practices, and that's totally fine because everyone else is doing that anyway. And this was her teaching. So you see here, this is the tolerance that Jesus does not tolerate, right? It is, it is a tolerance that overlooks what Jesus calls evil and calls sinful. And it's a tolerance in which Jesus' followers, his church, give an unqualified, unconditional affirmation to every belief and every behavior. And I think, I really think that what we see here is we see that Jesus is saying, listen, Christians... Christians cannot be tolerant of all things because Jesus is not tolerant of all things. There are things that are hurtful and are harmful to us that should not be tolerated in the life of a Christian. Listen, I think all of us who are parents kind of understand this, don't we? As a parent, I think we know this, love, love for your child is not an unqualified, unconditional affirmation of every belief and behavior. Absolutely. It is an unconditional, unqualified affirmation of love for your child, but not for every belief and every behavior, right? So you're, so for example, your kid comes to you, let's say that your child comes to you and says, mommy, I want to go play. I want to go play in the street, right? You don't, you're not going to look at your child and say, well, you know, sweetie to each his own. And you know, I, I don't know if I would prefer that, but it's up to you. And you got to no. you would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I will not tolerate that. Why? Because it hurts you and it's going to, to have consequence in your life, right? Uh, let's say that your five-year-old son comes to you, says, Daddy, Daddy, I want to stay up all night tonight. I want to binge watch Tiger King and eat five pounds of gummy bears, right? Now, you don't say, if you're a good parent, you don't say, well, you know, you're entitled to whatever, you know, your opinion is. And if that's what's going to make you happy, who am I to say? Like, no way. You're going to say, no, you need to get adequate rest. There's actually things that are healthy for you, and you should never watch Tiger King, probably ever, right? That's probably what you want to tell your kid. Or let's say that your child comes up to you and says, you know what, mom, dad, I think I want to be a Steelers fan. Right? You don't say, go ahead, worship the devil. Like, you don't say that, right? And, uh, and all I'm saying is, listen, there are things that are truly evil and are truly bad. Maybe not that last one, but there are things that are truly evil and truly bad. And therefore, there are certain things Christians should not tolerate in their own lives. So you see, I think, I think that there's different kinds of tolerance. And so when someone asks the question, are Christians intolerant? I think it's important that we first define what tolerance means. And I think it's actually interesting. D.A. Carson wrote a phenomenal book, by the way. It's called The Intolerance of Tolerance. 
And in that book's great title, he actually describes the difference between what he calls old tolerance and new tolerance. So old tolerance, which is sometimes referred to as classic tolerance, and then this new thing that's emerged recently that's called new tolerance. And basically, just to kind of clarify, the definition of old tolerance or classic tolerance is something like this. Old tolerance is recognizing and respecting others' beliefs and practices without sharing them. It's, yeah, I, I recognize and respect your belief and practice, and I don't necessarily have to agree with you. Right? Old tolerance says, I respect you, I value you as a person, but I can completely disagree with you, with your beliefs and your lifestyle, and I can still love you as a person and value you as a person. But what D.A. Carson points out is there is a new tolerance. There has been a shift that has taken place. And basically, new tolerance says this. This is actually right from his book. He says, new tolerance means that you must not say that anyone is wrong. You have to say that all positions are equally valid. In fact, D.A. Carson points out that some of this started to happen around as early as 1995, probably before that. But in 1995, uh, there was uh, the United Nations Declaration of Principles of Tolerance actually said this, tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. What's that mean? Well, basically it means that tolerance means that there's a rejection, that there is an absolute truth. Now, does that sound kind of complicated? It probably sounds complicated. So let me see if I can simplify it this way. All right, here we go. Old tolerance says all people are equally valuable. New tolerance says all ideas are equally valuable. Or let's try to put it this way, make it even more simple. Classic tolerance, old tolerance basically says this. It says that you should accept and affirm all people. And you can, by doing that, reject certain beliefs that you can disagree and reject with, uh, disagree with and reject certain beliefs. Okay, that's, that's kind of this classic tolerance. New tolerance flips that around. New tolerance says you have to accept and affirm every belief and that you can disagree and reject certain people who don't agree with that. And that is the difference between old and new tolerance. And so here's, here's a question then. Does Jesus promote or prohibit tolerance? Well, I mean, in one sense, Christians are called to love and serve even those who are radically different because every person, every person is made in the image of God and has dignity and has worth and, has, and is an image bearer of God. And so everyone has worth. Christians are called to not dehumanize those who are different in belief or lifestyle. But listen, that does not mean that Christians are to agree and accept every belief and every ideology. Christians believe there is truth. There is absolute truth. And it comes from Jesus. And that's what the scripture teaches. Now, I might also just say this. I might just add, without getting like too into it, even though the mantra of today is tolerance, this new tolerance that I just described to you, I think if you actually stop and think about it, you see that it is incredibly and increasingly intolerant. It just, it just is. It's incredibly and increasingly intolerant. Man, you want to see great intolerance of all kind? Very easy. Go to one place, social media. You will see great intolerance. You want to see judgment without mercy? Very easy. Just look at the online social shaming. Look at the cancel culture that we find ourselves in right now. You want to find, uh, you want to find judgment without mercy? Just, just say one socially insensitive thing, and you'll get the RIP treatment from, from, the, from the society and culture that we find ourselves in right now. So all I'm saying is new tolerance is actually in many ways very intolerant. And, and listen, the truth is that, that our culture, just like every other culture throughout the history of the world, 
shifts in what we tolerate and what we do not tolerate. And you know, that's not always a bad thing. So for example, today in our culture, I think we've all seen, it seems like there's a growing in and increasing intolerance of racism. And that's a good thing, right? I think biblically that's a good thing, that hopefully more and more and more there is a growing intolerance of things like racism. But you know, you also see that there's things in our society that we're very tolerant of. So for example, our society is very strong on sexual expression, right? The belief that sexuality is relative and everyone can just define what healthy sexuality looks like for themselves. And, and listen, all, here's the point I'm making. I'm just saying that at any given moment, in any given culture, there's going to be things that we tolerate and we do not tolerate. And oftentimes they switch, they change. In fact, I thought it was really interesting. I was um, listening to a pastor not too long ago, and he pointed out something I thought was really fascinating. He said, you know, 50 years ago, just 50, 60 years ago, he said that it used to be kind of like this. He said, we were laissez-faire about food. Like pretty much anything went. You could eat kind of whatever you want to. And he said, and then as it related to sex, we were pretty strict about that, right? About what healthy sexuality looked like. And he said, but now what's interesting is it's really changed. He says, now we're actually pretty strict about food and we're pretty laissez-faire about sexuality. You know, today you think about it as it relates to food. Isn't that true? We're very, very, very strict about some of the way that we approach food. You know, we talk about, is it gluten-free? You know, what about GMOs? You know, was the chicken free range? You know, was it red poetry? It's like, those are things that we're all talking about right now. And, and, and you kind of see that it's kind of switched a little bit. I think it's fascinating in many circles today, more parents would wince if a mother said that she fed her child Lucky Charms than if she announced that she was about to leave her husband. Isn't that crazy? I mean, in a lot of circles today, if a woman told other mothers that she was about to leave her husband, they would be like, ooh, yeah, tell me about that. That's interesting. But if she said, you know, I feed my kids lucky charms, they'd be like, you do what? That's crazy. How could you do that? And, and listen, I'm just, hear me. I'm not advocating for lucky charms, all right? I'm not. Well, maybe I am because they are, they're magically delicious. But what I am saying, what I am saying is, is this, it changes, it, it shifts and and because of that, this definition of tolerance is inconsistent. I would also just mention this last thing. New tolerance is actually logically inconsistent as well. You know, it's interesting. New tolerance, if you really stop and think about it, it, it actually folds in on itself. So for example, new tolerance says things like this. New tolerance says, everyone must tolerate every belief. And if you don't, then if you don't tolerate every belief, then that's intolerable. And you, you can see that, right? It just it's inconsistent within itself. Or New Tolerance says stuff like this, no one can make an absolute truth claim. But it only takes a few minutes of thinking about it that that in itself is an absolute truth claim. So look, bottom line, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, there is truth. There is, and it's not relative. There are, there are some things that Jesus would look at and say are healthy for human flourishing. And there's some things that are not. There are some things that are okay. And, what, and there are some things that are not. What Jesus is saying is sin is real. It is real. And it has consequences to it. And so listen, those who follow Jesus, I think, I think what we're saying is that we shouldn't tolerate and justify in our own lives or in the lives of others who claim to follow Jesus things that Jesus considers intolerable. So Jesus is going to go on and he's going to say these words to the church in Thyatira. He says this, he says, I've given her time to repent. I've given Jezebel time to repent of her immorality. Now, let me just say here that I think what we see here is we actually see a window into the grace of God, that God says, I've given her time to repent. And you know, the Bible actually tells us this. The Bible tells us that God is patient 
that he's patient with sin. That, and the reason is not because he approves of it, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants all people to come to repentance. It's actually what Second Peter chapter, uh, chapter 3 says. And see, I, I think there's something really important here. Christianity, and if you're a person investigating Christianity, I think this is really important for you to understand. Christianity teaches a message that includes and requires repentance. You see this word show up all over the place in the book of Revelation to these letters of the churches. You see it here at least a couple of times. Christianity is a message that requires repentance. And repentance might sound like a churchy word, but here's what it means real simple. It means change. It means I was going this way, and now I'm turning, and I'm going this way. And, and, and what, what we see in Scripture is that the Christian message is one that requires repentance. Now, for sure, please hear me. God's grace meets us right where we are. And so you might be a person right now, and you might be thinking, man, I am so messed up. There's no way God could ever meet me and forgive me. And let me just tell you, no matter where you are today, no matter how messed up you think you might be, Jesus Christ wants to meet you right where you are. But please make no mistake. He doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to change you. And he wants to transform you. And that requires repentance. Uh, there's a very famous passage in John 8. And Jesus said to a woman who was caught in adultery, you may have heard this story. He said to a woman caught in adultery after he sent everyone else away, he said, is there anyone here to condemn you? And she said, no. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. But then he said this. He said, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. So you see what he says. He accepts her. But he, and he loves her and he forgives her right where she is. But then he calls her into a life of repentance. And, and so listen, that, that is what the Christian life is. It's a life of saying, man, I need to change. And there's things that, that I'm doing that Jesus would define differently. There's things that I'm tolerating that Jesus doesn't tolerate. I need to change those things. And here's what Jesus says. He says, I gave her time to repent, but look at this. This is haunting. She's unwilling. She's unwilling. This is scary. Because what he's talking about here is purposeful, deliberate, conscious hardening of the heart and rebellion. This is, this is saying, no, I know what you said, God, and I'm just not going to do it. And he says this. He says, she's not willing. And then he goes on to say these words. So I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering. I'm going to make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Whew, man, some harsh words. You know, I think maybe for some of us, they may even seem cruel, and they may even make us cringe. You know, but I think that honestly, what this reveals to us is that one of the great lies of the enemy is that we can sin without consequence. And I think what this passage is telling us is that that's just not true. And, uh, you know, I think what Jesus is saying here actually is, is, uh, is, is uh, kind of explained and expressed in another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it says this. It says, do not be deceived. Right, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Like I said, the great lie of the enemy is that you don't reap what you sow, that, that you can do whatever you want and there's no consequences to that, and that's just not true. Listen, here's what the Bible says. When we turn from Jesus, we turn from life because he's the author of life. 
And when we turn away from Jesus, we turn away from the flourishing that he brings within that. And like I said, for some of you, this may seem harsh. It, it may seem cruel. But, you know, I just want to say, if you think that what Jesus calls sin is not all that serious and shouldn't have any consequences, let me just say, just, just look at your news feed. Read about some of the stories that are happening in the world. Just, just watch five minutes of the, Jeff, the Jeffrey Epstein documentary on Netflix, and you will see sin is destructive, and it hurts, and it harms us. And because of that, God, who is loving, must judge sin. And I think we see that here in this passage as well. Listen, God is patient, and he will give time to repent. But I think it's a mistake to sometimes interpret God's patience as acceptance. There, uh, just say, there's a lot more we could say about this here. But, uh, but as we're going through this passage, I can see that we're just about out of time. So let me just summarize what happens at the end. The end of this passage, Jesus ends this letter with an encouragement to those who hold on to Jesus' words and reject the teaching of Jezebel. And basically, he speaks with a lot of symbolism, and he says to, to his followers that those who hold on will reign with him and will be rewarded as a result of it. All right, so let's close with this. What are some quick implications at the end? What are, how do we kind of land this conversation? Where do we go with a conversation like this? So just three quick things, implications for us. So first off, I would say this. I think what this passage reveals to us is that followers of Jesus have to make a conscious decision to reject worldliness. Okay, so I know that the term worldliness might sound super churchy, but I think, I think that what we see in this passage is that followers of Jesus have to make a decision to say, we're going to live different. We're going to live different and not just go with the flow of everything that we see around us. We're not just going to tolerate all that Jesus does not tolerate. Um, I love the way one author says it, David Wells. He said this, he said, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And I think in a lot of ways, there needs to be a decision among Christians to reject that. Now, let me just say that this decision, this decision will show up in your life. It'll show up in your private life. It'll show up in your school life. It'll show up in the workplace. It'll show up everywhere. If you're a student and you decide to raise your hand for Jesus and say, I'm going to follow him and I'm going to follow his desires for my life, it's going to tell you that might cost you. It, it may cost you socially. It might cost you friendships. It might cost you popularity. It may even cost you academically in some cases. We say if you're in business, truthfully, in our world, there might be a lid to how high you can go in your business and continue to remain faithful to Jesus Christ because there's things that you're not willing to do that other people are willing to do to get to the top. I think we have to be willing to accept that if we reject worldliness. Maybe for you, you're in middle management. And listen, you may never be promoted because there's certain things that you simply cannot do because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing. I think followers of Jesus have to ask, what do I tolerate in my life? What do I tolerate? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, I think we have to ask that question. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of any areas of sin in your life that you're tolerating that Jesus Christ would call intolerable? Is that there? I also think maybe for some of you, you have to ask the question, is there something, maybe even as I'm teaching this and we're going through this passage, is there something in your spirit that's resisting this teaching, right? And let me just say, I think you might want to ask why that is, because what we're doing right now is quite honestly what we do every week. We're just opening the Bible and going through what Jesus said. And so that's something to process through. And then lastly, here's the third implication. I think it's this, to turn to Jesus, repent and find life. 
I think, by the way, this is an implication for those of us who follow Jesus and for those who maybe are investigating Jesus. The call is this, to turn to him, turn to Jesus and find life. And you know, if you're a, a follower of Christ and there is unrepentant, shaking my fist at God, that kind of stuff going on in your life, the invitation is extended to you to turn to him, turn to Jesus, repent and find forgiveness and find grace and find transformation. And for those who are investigating Christ, the invitation is there for you too, to turn to Jesus, turn to Jesus and find life, turn from Jesus and turn away from life. I think that's the message to the church in Thyatira. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I do just want to say thank you for these words that you've given to us. And, uh, and Lord, they're challenging, but I, I think that um, it's challenging words that, uh, that oftentimes truly transform our hearts. So God, I pray that you would help us to find, uh, to find in this your grace and your mercy to us. And Lord, I want to pray that you would help us to practice repentance, to come to you with a heart that's willing to change. And Father, we recognize that you're the author of life, and that means that in you is life. And so help us to turn to you and not away from you. And we just want to ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.